This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Melissa Floor Bixler. Melissa is a Mennonite pastor and author of the recent book, How to Have an Enemy. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Joe Day. Joe Day is a folk artist from Seattle. You can get connected with Melissa and Joe Day and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Melissa Floyer Bixler with us, and Melissa, on top of being a Mennonite pastor and on top of already writing uh, another book, you have now recently released another book called How to Have an Enemy, and we're going to talk all about that book. Uh, but I do have to say up front, Melissa, that, and this is all sincere, right? A lot of people know me for my lack of sincerity, but this is sincere. I don't know if there's been a theologian slash pastor who has influenced me more ethically than you have. In the way that you engage with other people, especially people who disagree with you, um, and the way that you just engage with like the public and political life in general, I don't know if I've been more influenced by somebody. I remember last last year at some point I was taking a class on Christian ethics, and we were supposed to write about somebody, doesn't matter if they're famous or not, somebody that influences them ethically. And you were the person I wrote about. And I don't think I ever told you that. So anyway. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So you have a lot to live up to, by the way. No, thanks. I surely will fail at that, but I <laughs> but I appreciate the challenge. <laughs> Lovely. Well, with uh, every guest, I always ask them this question. So uh, yeah, right up front, who is Melissa Floyer Bixler to Melissa Floyer Bixler? Ooh, wow. Who am I? Well, right now I am thinking about sort of my two main sort of places of, of most concern are parenting. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm a parent to three children who are going back to school 
fortunately we live in a pretty rational science believing place where they'll be in masks and, you know, which may, you may not know is North Carolina, um, where I'm, where I'm from. So, um, so I'm thinking a lot about them these days in my role as their parent. And then I'm also a gardener. Um, I, I have this garden that I've been working on. I saw that picture the other day. It looked great. This looked pretty good, huh? Um, which is like my, this new sort of thing I've taken up that has actually been like an important part of my, I guess, spiritual growth. I, I have, I have a tendency to be a very practically oriented person. I think this is sort of like a very Mennonite sort of like uh thing, like, like uh garden should be used for growing food. Like that's like, um, don't waste things. Like if you have the choice for flowers or bread, you always buy bread, which I think is like very helpful sometimes, but it also just being that utilitarian, I think is like, it's just something that we need to attend to. So Mm -hmm. this, I really committed to having this garden that was, it certainly is useful. It's a pollinator garden. So, um, but it's only use for me is that it is beautiful to look at. Are you maybe one day wanting to have like a beehive and everything? You know, possibly my, my other role as a parent, my, my kids are not super into like having bees around and there's a lot of bees around because of this garden now. So there may have to be some like parent child negotiation about a beehive. It sounds cool, but I also don't like the idea of being stung by bees, which I think you have to kind of like reconcile yourself to that. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Well, regardless, let's talk about the book. So you're no stranger to writing books. You've already written one or maybe even two before. What did you learn about yourself specifically while writing this book? Yeah, this is my second book. And it, you know, I think one of the parts about writing a first book is like, you just don't know what you're doing. And if it's your first book, you've never written something of that length, most likely, Mm -hmm. Um, unless of course you're like turning a dissertation to a book, which I wasn't. And so I think it's a very different kind of rhythm to writing than sermon writing or essays. And what does it mean to build an argument over the course of, and like to be able to like stretch out in your writing, which most of my writing being essays and sermon, it's like, you're trying to get that thing as tight as possible. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think like really giving myself some room to kind of, to stretch out in prose, to, to like, to like learn the rhythm and, and really to be able to like, um, exercise the rhythm of writing a book length was a felt definitely more comfortable this time. Mm-hmm. And you're no stranger to theology either. You're to my chagrin, a Bardian, but regardless, what did you learn theologically while you were writing this book? <laughs> yes. I'm glad we can, um, have unity in our disagreements. That's right. Here, yeah. Um, across, uh, across speaking of lines, enemies. But, <laughs> yes, I know of, as theological, look at us getting along here. Yes. I, yeah, theologically, I, you know, I, I really am a biblicist at the end of the day. Um, like Mm. my, my theology is driven by scripture again, sort of very both Mennonite and Bardian. And so I, you know, I think I just continued to feel like this was, this was a good opportunity to, to dig theologically into the questions of enmity that emerged from the actual Jesus, not, not the Jesus that we sort of wish was there, you know, always like recognizing that we are a part of these. It's not like there's like, 
like a historical Jesus to, to latch onto, but, but what does it mean to actually really wrestle with these stories that may not always like fit into our images of what we kind of wish Jesus was and the communities who sort of call that, that Jesus forth for us. And yeah, so that's sort of where I was at theologically with this book. And before we get into really the the content of the book, I have to ask, how could only an, an Enneagram 8 write this book? <laughs> right. I know. Yeah, you have to um, sort of have an appetite for, <laughs> for this kind of content. Um, and so it would be very fascinating to see how other people went <laughs> out. Like enemies, I've got a few of those. I can write about that. Yes, I know. But I think it's also great to be like, okay, like we are actually like, you know, not actually as scary. Like we're like, we're, you know, at the end of the day, we are people too, not just like balls of flame walking around the earth. Although sometimes we experience you as balls of flame walking around the earth. (laughs) I totally get that. And you know what? Yeah, we, I think we all kind of. Yeah, work we're, we're, works in progress. No. I will say eights are some of my favorite people in the world, so okay. I can get along with them. <laughs> I think you had to say that or you were afraid you'd get yelled that's at. True. But that's, that's true, that's true, which I was, you know, I, I'm waiting for whenever that happens. I grew up, but my mom's an eight, so I, I very oh, much know yeah. what it's like yeah, okay. to be yelled at an eight all the time. Uh, so you begin the book talking about the Christmas Day truce where World War One soldiers stopped the war on Christmas Day. So you mentioned about how they stopped the war and I forget exactly all the activities they did. I don't know if they had like a Christmas dinner type of thing or not, but they stop a war for a moment, even though they're fighting against each other. And you mentioned that a lot of churches will share this at some point. And I even like grew up hearing this story too. Anyway, like I'm really interested, like why do you think so many churches are really intoxicated with this kind of unity and story? I I think we love this story because it offers to us a pretty pain-free in a lot of ways um, way of imagining our way towards ending conflict, especially r- deeply entrenched conflict. Like, oh wow, if you know, if you know, I think if we just stopped and heard each other's stories, and you know, then like this is really like what what the problem is at the root here. And I think one reason churches love that story is because we see ourselves as the place where that happens, right? Mm. Like it it centers like what we do really well, which is sort of relational unity. Um, And so I think it, in some ways, it actually kind of centers the, like the, what the, what especially majority white churches imagine is their primary offering. And if, you know, if the world embraced this way of, of relating to one another around the table, we'll say, then this would, you know, this would really put an end to the problems that we're facing. Yeah. So I think there, there really is a a strong draw to this particular kind of narrative that's Mm -hmm. encapsulated in the Christmas day truce. I forget exactly like what all transpired after that, like day of unity between them, but I'm pretty sure like they went back to war and doesn't that sort of defeat like the whole purpose of that story is that even after this moment of unity where they, you know, were at the table eating with one another, they go back and they kill each other. Doesn't that seem to really like completely dismiss that entire story? Well, but I think this is where the myth comes in, because I think part of the mythology of this is that 
the that that they were punished, you know, that some of them refused to fight, which is actually probably not, you know, is not true from right. from the record that we have. Um, we, you know, I, I think another piece that we forget about this is this was pretty early on in the war. And and these were not soldiers who were conscripted, um, as would happen later in the war. These were actually professional soldiers who this is what they did. They killed people for a living. Right. And so there wasn't the sort of sense of like, ah, this, you know, these poor kids who were conscripted into the army. And so there's all of this sort of like barnacles that attach to this story and it sort of grows and grows. Um, and I think what is important for us to remember and what we don't remember that I wanted to bring some attention to in that first chapter is there actually were these resistance movements from mm. communists and socialists and and other like other people who worked diligently and consistently at a political level and and why are those stories not attractive to us right like those <laughs> those like these people who really did took this decisive action to resist the war those are not the stories that we lift up in our pulpits yeah. it's this what we like this one time easy sort of silver bullet. And so I think like, I wanted to situate the book around that sort of question for me. Yeah. Why have we prioritized this story over these multiple stories of resistance? Mm -hmm. So as you're talking about it throughout the book, what is an enemy? Right. So I, you know, I, I, I sort of offer a, a, a soft answer to that. You know, I think when we sort of have, whenever you write a book about enemies, you, right, you have to define the kind of the territory we're working on. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is certainly not the end of the final definition, but we get something that for us to sort of work together on as a, the assumption for this book um, is that enmity as we, as we're here about it in scripture, um, and I think how it often reflects back in our lives is when uh, difference is charged with power. So when there's differences that are, that where one group has power over another, and they use that power to turn those differences into violence or trauma or harm towards the other party, we describe that as a situation between enemies. Without power, you just have difference. You mm. have people who don't get along, right? Like not every time we don't get along, every time we have differences between us, would we describe that as enmity? Power is what makes, what what changes difference from enmity. That was the one thing that became really clear to me as I was reading in the book is how much of a sort of power analysis is required as one is working through how they're supposed to have an enemy. And so I love the fact that like, even in the very definition that you're using for enemy, the powers already involved in it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really, I, I sort of cut my teeth in community organizing, um, around the work of the industrial areas foundation and Saul Linsky's work. Um, those were that, those are the first places that I sort of had an introduction to organ organizing organizational tactics. And while I don't, I don't embrace everything about the Alinsky model. What it did instill in me from very early on was that power matters in politics. Like, like this, the being able to do a systematic power analysis is the beginning of any sort of organizational movement. And what you do with that, I think that those organizational tactics sort of emerge from there. But very early on, I stopped 
thinking about power as like a dirty word, which I think we often sort of think about in the church. Like we just don't talk about power here. Right. Mm-hmm. And instead power is as a force is, is just something that, that we can, that is always at work on us, even if we refuse to acknowledge its presence among us. Mm-hmm. We can maybe talk about it later, but power is really the reason why I'm interested in process and the reason why I'm interested in the sort of ecclesiology that I'm interested in. And so, yeah, we can talk about that later and maybe there's some sort of fitting to enemies and everything. But uh, with all of that said, one of the insights that you bring up in the book is that Jesus doesn't call us to not have enemies, but rather to love our enemies. So with that kind of working definition of an enemy, what does it really mean to love an enemy? Yeah, you know, I I think one of the, something that I heard sort of reverberating back through this Jesus I encountered in the reading partners of womanist theologians and Black liberation theologians through the communities who spoke the Magnificat into the, 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 the public squares of Central America, encountering that question along these, this particular group of readers is what does it mean to create a world where we know where we no longer have enemies because the systems that scaffold enmity in place have been taken down, but also recognizing that the, that scaffolding is made of our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something. It's a it's it's a material reality that is it, yeah. So so moving beyond these are just sort of ontological issues in, um, that we have to work out but actually has something to do with the with our material relations to one another. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other part of loving our enemies is that we want people to be set free from the the violent incursion that it, of oppressed and oppressors that often runs directly through each of us. Mm-hmm. And so to to recognize that we are all caught up in that sort of that cycle and what we're invited into is breaking apart that cycle, which is freedom for all mm-hmm. of us. Mm-hmm. That's actually what I'll be writing a lot of my thesis on is that the, the sort of violence, especially when it comes to uh, the violence that uh, is inflicted on the oppressed, and even for the the sort of ways that violence is being inflicted by the oppressors, that actually is literally changing our genes. It's changing our physical bodies and it gets carried through generation after generation. But at the same time, even though it's changing, healing and wholeness can actually also also change our physical bodies as well. It changes our genes and it, that can carry over generation to generation. And so, yeah, when you talk about this as like, it's not just ontological, but it really does have material effects. Like mm-hmm. I would even go as far to say it literally has effect on our bodies because like we're now, our science is able to now start to identify and discover ways in which that sort of violence, that sort of trauma is actually being inhabited in our bodies, uh, even for the oppressed and even for the oppressors. Mm, yeah, that's great. So, uh, and you kind of alluded to this already, but you talk a little bit about how a lot of people in like the liberal uh, white and kind of white progressive Christianity, they really like to think of Jesus as one who's like inclusive to all. And I think sometimes it's a pretty good impulse, but how does Jesus actually maybe like draw lines and is not maybe all the inclusive person that we think he is? Right. I, you know, I think this, um, this sort of, often comes to a head and sort of the discussions about how we practice communion and 
what is the, that, like, I think this, this image of tables is often, you know, open table that we, you know, if we gather around the table and, and, and what I thought was interesting about going back and reading these stories again with, with, um, you know, biblical scholars like um, Dale Allison is, I know that when we, when we think about these um, images that, you know, we, we sort of apply, we think of a table and it's, you know, our kitchen table or our potluck table and, and really probably what Paul and Jesus are encountering are more like a boardroom. It's like these are, you know, these are like the, the places where actually business transactions are made and, and unlike us, there isn't this sort of stark division between public and private life, religious and secular, like all of this is sort of intersecting in, in everyday life for people. And so when we're actually talking about tables as places where, where power is consolidated, where business transactions are made, that really shifts, I think, for us the kind of ways that we're, that we look at like what Jesus is doing. So when Jesus comes around a table and tells people, you know, actually the, the, you know, the, the, the prominent people need to sit back and let the, the, the dishonored people come to the front. We're actually talking about like people who have access to like to business ties or to, yeah, like it's what we often sentimentalize about Jesus ministry is actually um, Jesus deeply involved in a total meltdown of the socioeconomic systems of his day. And so what is what does that mean for us who encounter these stories again um, and then and want to turn them into sort of sentimental moments of um, enemies gathering around the table, which mm-hmm. just doesn't happen right, um, right. in the New Testament. He seems to be like acutely aware of power in all the situations in all of those stories. It's just, it's really incredible to reread like the gospels and see how he's identifying power because that seems to be the sort of force for why he makes the decisions he makes. Right. I mean, and it's so, I mean, like someone like Philip Goodchild, who does this incredible analysis of the story where the woman comes with this expensive jar of nard and breaks over Jesus' feet and like Jesus knows that there's this, like there's a, there's a hospitality as patron relationship happening here, that he is being brought there to be brought under the house of this patron. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Right. And, and so to relativize the power of those two people, this, this woman, this embarrassing hospitality breaking woman, and this, this elite religious leader to relativize them on the same system of um, both being in need of grace. That's a, that is, that's like, that's an economic, an economic parable that's being told in the midst of this. And we lose that for, oh, like, isn't this great that this, like that Jesus and this woman are and this man are all eating together. Like, look at them. Like we, we just have, we have to do better than this with, yeah. with our biblical interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that came up to me while I was reading the book was when we think about our enemies, who is our enemies? And one of the things that I found sort of I don't know, challenging as I was reading the book was when you know, when I think back to the conservatives with whom I grew up, 
I can't help but think that in a lot of cases, they really are hurting themselves when they're against things like universal health care and public schools and et cetera, et cetera. So it seems like in a lot of ways, these people are not just enemies to others or that they have their own enemies, but they also are like enemies to themselves. And so one of the things that or a question that came up to me while I was reading the book was how can one love themselves if they feel as if they're an enemy to their self? Hmm. Yeah, you know, except that I do think that there is, this is part of the deception that happens here is uh, like, I think we're even seeing this now with COVID, right? Like we have the governor of Florida saying like, it's actually freedom. Freedom is more important than, you know, your death and the death of, and, and we have people believing this narrative, right? That this is something that's deeply woven into a, like a sordid political partisan identity. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there is what, it, what, it, what I often feel like in those moments is that there is this like enslavement to this, mm-hmm. to the, like, to what is often like a white racialized identity politics. Mm-hmm. And once you view the world as, in that way, it's very hard to break out, mm-hmm. break out from that. Right. And so I think that it's, and this is often, you know, I think, I think one of the other myths that we inhabit is that somehow, if we know those stories of, of that entrapment, that that's going to like help us to un- like, we can understand and we'll have compassion and anger will dissipate. And, and actually you can sustain both of those. Like you can both be like grieve for people who are Mm -hmm. locked into this, um, into the system that harms them Mm -hmm. and be angry as hell Mm -hmm. that they continue to like advance a politics that is destruction to black and brown people in our world. Mm -hmm. There is this, again, it feels strange to me probably because of like, I just am okay with like feeling angry about things, but this strange sort of sense that you, you can only have one or the other. And we actually have the capacity to hold both of those things within us. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Like, I think we see Jesus do that all the time. Like this, this like weeping, you know, weeping over Jerusalem. And then it turns around as like t- cursing Jerusalem. Like mm-hmm. all of these things are possible for us at the same time. Um, and so uh, making space for that, I think is part of the, part of this work. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this at the top uh, of the episode, uh, but you're a Mennonite pastor, and so you're in the Mennonite tradition, which is really known for its pacifism. And I'm interested, what does pacifism look like in this sort of loving your enemy kind of way that you lay out in the book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, I think that the Mennonite church has gone through pretty strong changes, especially in the 60s. We if you had the idea that that Mennonites are pacifists is actually um, uh, is actually pretty new. I know that that may sound a little strange, it, not in the sense of pacifism being a a position that we take in the world. Mm. If you had looked back fifty years ago, you would have heard Mennonites describe themselves as um, non-resistant. Uh, that that would have been the primary language Mennonites used to describe themselves, which was which meant we just didn't engage. We didn't vote. We didn't run for mm-hmm. school board. We didn't send our kids to school, to public schools. 
we just didn't engage, right? Um, and so it was a very highly sectarian um, way of imagining ourselves as separate from the world, trying not to be corrupted by the world. That mm-hmm. So that in the 60s, that non-resistance really gives way to this idea of pacifism as a, a particular stance that Mennonites would take in relation to the world. And that came about because black and brown Mennonites said, we're in a, this is a race war. Like we are like a race and your non-participation is, is participation, right? Like Mm -hmm. by saying we will, we refuse to engage, you are actually fighting on the side of white supremacy. Mm. Um, And so people like Vincent Harding, Juanita Lark, these, these were sort of the, the Mennonites at the forefront of this change that happens. John Powell, who helped us begin to imagine ourselves as part of like a reparation campaign, mm. right? That Mennonites needed to actually engage in their own complicity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became pacifism, right? So now our, you know, the, for the past 10 years, the, the, the um, number one priority of Mennonite Church USA has been dismantling white supremacy, right? Like a hundred years ago, that like would not have been something we used to describe our lives. Mm-hmm. So actually that has been a journey that our, our church has been on to seeing ourselves as actually active participants in injustice work in the world. You had a curious look Waiting there in the light Staring off into space Fixed on a I would imagine knowing my listeners and kind of knowing their background, a lot of them are like probably listening to this episode right now and thinking, all this sounds great, but I really want to like know what are the nuts and bolts? Like, how does this actually maybe look like in my own life? And based on all of that, I'm kind of interested in, and you don't have to like name names or anything, but like in your own life, maybe recently, like what has it looked like for you to have an enemy? Yeah, I I think that one of the ways that I have had to grapple with this question of enmities too is is through the help of somebody like Willie Jennings, who um, talk he he I share a little bit about this really important talk he gave about black anger, and his concerns about white people telling him. I, you know, something, you know, there'll be a, a police shooting of, of a black person. And one of his white friends will say, I, I couldn't, I never, I could never know what it feels like to be you. Um, but I, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm with you in solidarity that, and, and Jennings response to that is we need white people to take hold of black anger. Mm. Um, we need you to make your enemy, our enemies, your enemies too. Mm. So I, you know, I, <laughs> I'm a, middle-class white woman in the South. Um, and so my experience of enmity is almost entirely an act of co-conspiracy with the people in my community who are under the, under the boot of economic and social repression. Mm -hmm. So one of our enemies has been the police chief who gassed protesters at Mm -hmm. during the summer of 2020, 
One of our, our enemies is the city council who continues to um, green light uh, housing projects that dispossess black neighborhoods and continue to cause our eviction rates to rise um, and push out from uh, from black neighborhoods while continuing to make those um, places of food apartheid. Like we have uh, we have enemies in the co-conspiracies of black liberation. And so those are some of the people that I would point to who continue to participate in their own oppression by advancing policies that harm mm. um, the Black community in, in Raleigh. Kind of along those lines, and maybe this is related to you mentioning that we can hold both grief and anger to our towards our enemies. And again, I think a lot of people who are listening probably grew up maybe in like conservative evangelicalism or something similar. And that certainly was my experience. And one of the things that I'm constantly personally wrestling with is how can I both feel empathy and love towards my parents, but also in a lot of ways feel like they're enemies by the things that the, the things that they support, uh, both theologically and politically. And I don't know, like knowing that that really ties in with a lot of what you were talking about in the book. Can you talk a little bit about like what you would maybe recommend for someone or suggest to someone as they navigate those kind of relationships with people who raise them and they deeply love, but also really feel like they're enemies right now? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a really painful place to be. Um, and I think it's echoed by people who are leaving church communities that that they cared about and and to also say that we look at those people who and they loved us right mm -hmm. they, it's like, yeah. like I grew up in a church like this where people were kind to me and and nourished me and and loved me well and they are enemies to to the things I love and care about that mm -hmm. are my that um, separate them from me because mm -hmm. of my commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, I, I think that there is that uh, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it also assumes that, right. It is mm -hmm. like the Bible is very anti-family for this reason, like that it, the assumption is that eventually we're going to come to that point where something um, or where the call of good news is a wedge um, between us and our family members. Part of, part of this question is how much of ourselves do we want to give over to the continued sort of um, engagement around um, people we love who cause harm to others? And how much, of, how much energy and time do we want to devote to that? And how much do we just need to leave aside for the work that, that we're being called to do? I think it's also something that's important as we, as we read the new Testament is that Jesus isn't angry all the time, right? Like there's certainly these moments of that where we absolutely see Jesus expressing anger. And also Jesus just can't commit his life to like he doesn't spend all his time like, oh, let's like, let's really like get out there and like get the, and get the religious leaders. Like let's, yeah. let's really like commit ourselves to like getting the, um, the, the, the Roman soldiers, like Jesus is like the only time Jesus interacts with those people is when they come to him, like her, mm -hmm. when he's invited to their house mm -hmm. and it's like a, is like a teaching moment, mm -hmm. right? Like 
So how much of our time do we actually want to spend on trying to pull people out of this? And how much do we want to spend building the world that we want to see? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we can love the, these people who continue to be agents of harm and to recognize that agency and say, you know what, I got to build this new world and with these people who are invested in, in creating something new. And we want to invite you into that because this is wholeness and life. But there's also nothing I can do to like to, to talk you out of that. It's a miracle to, for people to be pulled out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully you witnessing the life that's happening here will be enough for you to say, oh, yeah, I want to leave this behind um, and be a part of this new thing that's already happening in the world. See, this is why I write about how you're my ethical inspiration. You <laughs> took exactly what I would have said. <laughs> that's great. So how is this book inspiring and liberating theological work? Yeah. Mm, is it? I hope it is. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Let's just assume it is. <laughs> okay. We'll assume it is. All right. What I hope that it does for people is that it, I hope that the book will provide people um, who have felt like the theological spaces that they're occupying have not made room for the full breadth of what they're experiencing. I think that this, like the, the best way that I can describe the past five years of the Trump administration into the present is that I think a lot of us have felt sort of this ecclesial gaslighting about the way that we're, we should have responded to what was happening in when we uh, encountered the harm from that administration. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of us were told that our theology demands that we have an open mind or that we just listen to more stories. And so I, I hope that for people who, this is like, um, I always say that this is a book for us, right? Like this is a book for people who are already wanting to do this work or for, who are I don't write to try to convince people to do something else. I write for the people who are already have a theological imaginary and and are looking for resources to continue this work and be on the journey. And so I hope this is one one piece of that for people who felt like this postmortem of the Trump administration has um, more to say to us than, um, well, if we had just listened better to to white anger, we wouldn't be in this place, mm-hmm. right? We need mm-hmm. something more than that. Absolutely. Last question, Melissa, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yeah, I um, am on the the Bird app, so you can find me on Twitter. And yeah, I, you know, I'm always happy to zoom in on book discussions and you can catch me kind of here and there at conferences. Um, our church has a, a sermon podcast. Um, and so Raleigh Mennonite, you can kind of catch us, catch up with us and sort of what our, our preaching um, has been over the past couple weeks uh, there and happy to connect. Lovely. How does it make your Duke heart feel that you live in Raleigh? Is there, is there an ag- antagonism going on there? Do you, do you feel like, wow, I really have to be surrounded by all these UNC people? Yeah, you know, it's not so bad. It's like of the triangle schools, it's NC State is not a quite like at the same, like, a, you know, I think that I think they know that I'm sure there's some like, 
soft spots about that. But yeah, in general, being a Duke fan it, it, anywhere in North Carolina is sort of like a is a little shady, but you know, you guys know how to make your enemies. We do. Yep. Uh, not always in pleasant ways. Although UNC has really been uh, taking the cake um, in terms of like uh, uh, so, uh, uh, aggressive ways of of being enemies to just about everybody in the world. So that's we're, we're going to hand the prize to them for a little bit. <laughs> they can have it for a second. So yeah, well, great. thank you again, Melissa, for not only chatting a little bit about the book, but for even writing this book. This is, I think, is such an incredible work for people, especially for those of us who are constantly wrestling with what does it really mean in the world to feel like there needs to be liberation. And that also means that uh, you can't just be inclusive to all, right? Like this sort of white liberal uh, impulse that uh, all need to be at the table, including uh, ICE agents and undocumented immigrants, right? And that's just been a really hard thing for a lot of us to wrestle with and for you to really beautifully articulate why there's a different alternative to all of that is really, really incredible. So thank you so much for writing the book and uh, chatting a little bit more about it. All right. Thanks, Mason. It was great to be with you. Dreaming up blue skies again You've been counting up all of the things you can spend The shirt on your back and no pad and a pen Dreaming up blue skies again If you would like to connect with Melissa and Joe Day and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Imagine it. Try to capture it. Try it.